Everybody looks ready. Here we go. This is 1 Timothy chapter 4, starting in verse 1, and we're going to read five verses together here. So let me read these verses now. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Father, we want to invite you in this time now to speak to us through your word. God, we, as your children, want to hear from you. Lord, we believe the simple adage that Father knows best. God, we know that every verse, all scripture is inspired by you and that it's all aimed at our benefit, for our good. So Lord, we pray now as we consider these five verses together this morning, that you would speak to us, that you would teach us, And Lord, that you would help shape and mold us into the type of people individually, but even the type of church corporately that you want us to be. And so God, we invite you in this time now to do this work in our hearts and in our midst for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Why don't you go ahead and be seated. So this time of year... All of us are seeing lots and lots of advertisements, of course, and I'm really shocked at the strategic marketing on social media these days. Um, I'll be on Instagram or something or Facebook, and you you get like strategic marketing that's coming to you based on things that you've looked at or uh, researched in the past. Uh, One of the things that keeps coming back to me is DNA testing whether it's like Ancestry.com or 23andMe. I keep getting advertisements for this stuff, and I'll I'll confess to you, I'm a little bit interested in doing DNA testing and kind of figuring out a little bit more about my roots and where I've come from, where my family's from. Um, But evidently, I've been looking into that a little bit this year because it keeps coming to me. Um, So maybe I should just go for it and just do it. But a lot of people are interested in DNA testing these days. Maybe some of you have even done it. And again, a lot of us were interested in it because of the ancestry portion of it. We just want to know, like, who, who am I? Where have I come from? Where's my family from? And maybe some of us even want to build out our family trees a little bit. But there's another side to DNA testing that's becoming more and more popular these days, and it's the health side of it or the genetic side of it, where they'll actually use your DNA as they've gathered that from you, and they'll look in your DNA for genetic markers. And those genetic markers are going to indicate to the experts, whether or not you have a genetic propensity toward certain diseases or certain conditions. Now, I'll confess to you that although I am interested in the ancestry side of this, I am not interested in the genetic markers. Um, It's scary to me. Like, I I guess I'm just the ignorance is bliss type of person. If I'm like going to get sick at some point in the future... I almost just kind of want to bury my head in the sand. I don't know that I would want to know. I don't feel like I would do good with that information. It would just stress me out probably more than anything. But I do understand why some people want to know that. You know, when you know of something bad that might happen, when you're, when you're aware of 
a negative thing that's in your future, it kind of helps you to brace for impact a little bit. And also prepare yourself a little bit uh, to try to handle that thing that's coming down the pipe toward you. In our passage this morning that we've just read together, the Apostle Paul is sort of helping his young apprentice in the faith, a man named Timothy, who was a young pastor in a church in a city called Ephesus. He's sort of helping Timothy to brace for impact because there was a bad thing happening in the church at Ephesus and it was threatening to get even worse. And that bad thing was a thing called apostasy. Apostasy is a word that just means people falling away from the faith. People who at one point were professing their faith in the Lord Jesus. They were among us worshiping on Sunday mornings, and yet they apostatized or they fell away from the faith. And the Apostle Paul is telling Timothy in our text this morning that that sort of event, people who we love, people who we've maybe even known for a long time, Uh, are actually going to fall away and leave the church family. We read this right there in verse 1. Paul writes, Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith. Again, he's, he's saying that this apostasy, this falling away, this departing from the faith is going to happen. It's It's certain. This is why I titled our message this morning, The Certainty of Apostasy. And notice here that the Apostle Paul is not locating this guarantee of apostasy in his own feelings. It's it's not just kind of a hunch that he has. He's actually locating this guarantee in the Spirit himself. He's saying the Spirit has told us these things or made these things known that in later times, some will depart from the faith. So the apostasy is certain. It's going to happen. It was going to happen there in Ephesus. As we'll see this morning, it was happening there in Ephesus. Um, But what else can we say about when it would happen? He, He uses this expression here, in later times. You read that and you think, okay, he's talking about a distant future moment. That's what you would think. In later times, at some point in the future, people are going to depart from us and fall away. But you need to know that in the New Testament, later times or last days, those sorts of expressions are actually referring to the entire church age. From the moment of the apostles 2,000 years ago, from the moment that Jesus our Savior established the church and inaugurated His kingdom, all the way until Jesus returns and consummates the kingdom. This entire church era in the New Testament is deemed later times or last days. And the fact that the Apostle Paul is in these verses talking about apostasy that was happening right there in Ephesus helps us to realize, again, even though he talks or he uses the expression later days or later times, he's talking about the present for them all the way up to, listen, the present for us. This was a reality in Ephesus 2,000 years ago. This is a reality in churches in Santa Barbara today. People will depart from the truth. People will leave the church. Again, people that we probably love. People, unfortunately, that we might have known for years. Timothy needed to know this. As a young pastor, shepherding a congregation, he needed to be aware that this reality exists. This is par for the course in church life. 
And guess what? You and I need to know this as well. Not just so we can brace for impact, but again, so that we can prepare ourselves and see if there are measures that you and I can take to ensure that we ourselves never fall prey to this, that we ourselves are not here for the moment now, but we depart from the faith at some future point. And also so we can try to prepare ourselves collectively as a church. Are there things that we can do that would help to the best of our abilities to ensure that people are not apostatizing, that people are not departing from the faith. You know, getting back to the genetic testing for a, mo- for a moment, the reason why people want to learn about these genetic markers is so that they can hopefully take preventive steps that would help them to avoid those future diseases that they, they have a genetic tendency toward. Some of you might remember um, a couple years ago, actress Angelina Jolie had a double mastectomy, but it was actually just preventative. She didn't have breast cancer at the time. But the reason she did that is because she had uh, learned from her doctors that she had a mutated gene that increases her likelihood of uh, developing breast cancer or ovarian cancer. And in her case, even as a young woman, her doctors were telling her that in their best estimates, they said she, was 80, she had an 87% chance of developing breast cancer. And so as a result of that information, she opted to have this preventative surgery to avoid that potential future reality. And for us, in a similar way, Paul is warning Timothy and he's warning us this morning that apostasy is certain so that you and I, again, can prepare ourselves and the church to detect it and avoid it going forward. So to that end, the Apostle Paul explains in this text the causes of apostasy, as well as the specifics of it here in Ephesus. And then finally, like a good spiritual doctor, the Apostle Paul offers us a corrective for apostasy. How do we deal with this? How can we avoid this in the church? So let's begin here with the causes of apostasy. What I mean by that is, how will this happen? I mean, I would assume most people who have departed from the faith didn't begin their time at church saying, you know, I want to do this for a little bit, and then I just want to go run after the devil. <laughs> I just want to walk away from all of this. So how does this actually take place? How does this, how does this happen? Well, he writes here that those who are falling away, that are going to depart from the faith, they do so by devoting themselves to something. That's a strong word. Devoting themselves to what? He writes, deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Paul's able to show us here in this text that when we start asking ourselves, how does this happen? What is the the root cause of apostasy, he wants us to know that on one hand, there are demonic agents that are at work in the world. That the world that you and I live in is a world that has good and evil, and it's a world that has a God in heaven who loves us, and there is a devil who hates us. Notice that these ideas that were infiltrating the church at Ephesus and the ideas that infiltrate churches in Santa Barbara, that these aren't just bad ideas, they're actually demonic ideas is what he's saying. That there's a demonic undercurrent in the world that helps to foster 
wrong thinking that lures people away from God? Satan's clever. He's a deceiver. He's a liar. And he is energized and has always been energized to come after God's creation, to come after people and seek to steal, kill, and destroy. That's his MO. He's looking at this church this morning. As Peter would put it in 1 Peter 5, like a lion who's roaming around in his cage back and forth looking for somebody to devour. And we have to be a people who are on guard. Now, some of us might bristle at the seemingly superstitious attitude of the Apostle Paul. Some modern people would just kind of write this off as a superstition of previous generations. But again, if we're going to take seriously what the Bible says, you guys, we have got to have this category in our minds. That again, just as surely as there's a God in heaven who loves you this morning, there is a devil who hates you. There is a devil who wants to destroy you. And he is actively working in the world, introducing dangerous teaching. The question becomes this then. How did these Ephesian apostates get access to this deceptive and demonic teaching? Okay, if we're talking about like demonic teaching that exists in the world, I mean, how did they actually get access to that teaching? Where does that come from? Well, Harry Potter, of course. No, I'm just kidding. In some Christian circles, maybe. Um, how, how did they get access to this? Well, the answer in the text there is this. It's, it's through people. It's through false teachers we read in the text. That's where the doctrines of demons or the teaching of demons were coming to the Ephesian people from. It was coming through people. And again, in this case, teachers in the church. So we just talked about how there are demonic agents that are at work in the world, helping to foster a place of, or a climate of apostasy. But not only are there demonic agents, we see here that there are human agents. The Apostle Paul writes that this takes place through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. It's a pretty harsh assessment of these false teachers in Ephesus. Some translations will, will say something along the lines of hypocritical liars. The idea is that these false teachers who were teaching wrong things, they actually were doing that and they were knowing what they were doing. They weren't even believing the things that they were teaching, but they were teaching it nonetheless to suit their own passions. When you think of the various cults and false religions that exist in the world, and you could name probably a dozen of them if you just sat and thought about it. When you think about those cults and when you think about false religions in the world, the level of immorality of the leader is usually unthinkable. When you trace those movements back to those who started it, oftentimes you see incredible immorality if you look at it from the outside. I mean, oftentimes the leader of a cult has a harem of women. Surprise, surprise. He tells the church, oh, you know, God said that I'm supposed to be with all of your wives, blah, blah, blah. And all of a sudden, every, oh, well, if this is what the Lord says. And he's got all of these women. Or you see certain religions or certain ideologies that have been built on violence and um, conquest and things like that, where all of a sudden you get power, you get land, you get wealth. 
You see a lot of times in various cults and false religions that it's built on exploiting the vulnerable financially, where all of a sudden they're taking advantage of people and everybody else is supposed to live sacrificially and we're all supposed to be called to be broke. And then you find out the leader is the one that's got all of the money and they've got all these assets and they've got all these things. And you sit back and you ask yourself, do these people that are leading these kinds of movements, do they really believe that God wants them to do these things? Do they really believe that these things are right in the world? Or do they know the whole time that this thing is a sham? Well, at least for some of them, it seems that they know it's a sham. And they're doing these things, again, to suit their own passions. Now, most of us sit here and go, man, how how do people live like that? I mean, how could somebody just knowingly exploit people, take advantage of people, do things that are totally immoral. You want to know the answer? It's because their consciences have been seared. I mean, think of the imagery there. The searing of a conscience. Think about the searing of flesh. When something is branded, or if you were to take your hand and you were to put it on a hot pan or something, that searing sensation takes place. Paul uses that language to describe what can happen to a human conscience. That mechanism internally that is supposed to warn you when you're doing the wrong things. That is supposed to be that voice that helps you to stay sort of on the straight and narrow in the world. The Apostle Paul is teaching us, and he's taught it elsewhere in this same letter, that your conscience can actually be broken. It can be seared. You know, when you think about how apostasy works, how falling away works, it almost never happens overnight. Again, I said earlier, I mean, people don't just show up. You're not sitting here this morning unless your conscience conscience has already begun the process of being seared. You're not sitting here this morning going, you know, I really, really hope to become a terrible person someday. I really, really hope that there's a Netflix documentary done on me in 20 years about how I took advantage of a bunch of people and was a horrible guy or gal. We don't just wake up thinking that. Most of us are in the church because we're going, hey, hey, is there, is there something here for me? Is there truth here? Is there a way to build a life that's actually, that actually matters and actually helps people in the world? And, and so these things don't happen overnight. Generally, it's a much slower, more subtle movement away from godliness. And then as a result, move, movement away from truth itself. You know, when you begin to reject your conscience long enough, you come to a point where your conscience rejects you. When you continue to silence that voice that's trying to tell you, hey, this this isn't right. Stop this, stop this, stop this. And you just keep, boom, just blowing through every warning sign and you just keep going. Eventually your conscience is going to reject you. And your conscience becomes seared. And your conscience is no longer there as a, mech, a God-ordained mechanism to slow down evil in your life. John Stott points out that the way that these false teachers got to the point of leading others astray was actually from taking this verse in reverse. So turn it backward, this whole verse. This is what he says. He says, the grim sequence of events and the career of the false teachers has now been revealed. First, they turned a deaf ear to their conscience until it became cauterized. Next, they felt no scruple in becoming hypocritical liars. 
Thirdly, they thus exposed themselves to the influence of deceiving spirits. Finally, they led their listeners to abandon the faith, end quote. That's the way apostasy works. It works by us first rejecting conscience and living in sin, living in rebellion. And once we've done that, we become comfortable with that and we expose ourselves to wrong thinking, oftentimes to justify our behavior. And then oftentimes we become a tool in Satan's hand to actually lead other people away from the Lord. So we see here, as we talk about the causes of apostasy, that there are both demonic agents that are truly at work in the world, but also human agents that are being used almost like pawns in the enemy's hand to bring people away from faith in Jesus Christ. Now, I want to caution us against one thing. All of this can almost make it sound like those who uh, ultimately fall away or apostatize, it almost sounds like they're just victims in all this, that there's evil spirits that are at work in the world, and there's these wicked false teachers who are just luring innocent people away. But guys, that's not necessarily true. Again, on the one hand, yes, there are uh, demonic agents and human agents at work, but on the other hand, again, the initial move toward apostasy is people living in sin, rejecting their own conscience. We read about this in 2 Timothy chapter 4. Listen to this, verses 3 and 4. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. So the apostle is there saying, look, the problem is people have wrong passions already. And so they start looking around saying, is there somebody who will... Who will reinforce the things that I want to do, who will reinforce the wicked tendencies in my heart. So the drift of false teachers and those who follow them always begins the same way, at the level of disobedience, at the level of searing their own consciences. Let's move from the causes of apostasy now to the specifics of it here in Ephesus. So what are the demonic ideas that they were teaching in Ephesus? Number one, there were two of them that the Apostle Paul points out here. The first demonic idea in verse 3 here is that marriage is bad. Now some of you might have been married for a really long time and it hasn't gone well and you're like, yay and amen, pastor. Marriage is bad. That's not true. But these false teachers were saying marriage is bad. These false teachers were actually forbidding people from getting married. They were arguing likely that the single life was more holy, that it was superior to the married life. I think in our culture right now in the church, we tend to actually go in the opposite direction. We, we tend to so elevate marriage that single people feel like they're deficient. They feel like they're less than everybody else, that they're living in an inferior life. I just want to tell you that's not true either. So fix that church. If that's your theology, that, that, that the marriage is the superior way, let me give you a little newsflash. Jesus, the Messiah, the perfect one, was single and celibate. So Jesus wasn't deficient. He wasn't missing anything. But the truth of the matter is that marriage and singleness are just unique callings for different people. And that marriage is the norm. It is the general experience for 
most people. But listen, marriage in and of itself is good. It is a good gift from a good God. Unfortunately, the history of the church is one in which this temptation to devalue sex and marriage has been given in to over and over again. In fact, within the Catholic tradition, we still see remnants of this idea in the church today and the fact that priests, pastors, are not allowed to marry. They're called to a life of celibacy and singleness as if that's the more holy life, that this is the more godly way to live. Arkin Hughes notes that the Catholic Church in the 16th century kept adding days in the calendar in which married people were prohibited from having sex. So the church would actually say, these are the days you can't have sex even though you're married. They kept adding days to the calendar until more than half the days on the annual calendar were like blackout dates for married couples to have sex. I love our Kent Hughes' next uh, statement. This is what he says. He goes, no wonder there was a reformation. <laughs> right? People were like, enough of this. Enough of this. Now, where did this idea come from here in Ephesus? This idea that marriage is somehow bad and should be restricted. It's hard to know for sure, but I think one good clue is related to one of the false teachers that were warned about back in verse 20 of chapter 1. His name was Hymenaeus. This is back in chapter 1, verse 20. We're told there that he had shipwrecked his faith. He was a false teacher in Ephesus that Paul calls out by name and warns the church against. So he was a false teacher, but check this out. In, in 2 Timothy, we actually get a little bit of information about the nature of his false teaching, the, the bad doctrine that this particular guy had. Here's 2 Timothy 2, 16 through 18. Paul writes to Timothy in his second letter. He says, But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus, here he is, and Philetus, who have swerved from the truth, saying that, here's the teaching, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. In other words, this man, Hymenaeus, believed and taught that the resurrection of the righteous had already taken place. Okay, big deal, Daniel. What does that have to do with marriage? Do you remember what Jesus said about marriage in the resurrection? Back in the Gospels, Jesus was talking, he was in a debate, he was always caught up in debates, but with Sadducees and Pharisees, and the Pharisees believed in a resurrection, the Sadducees don't, and Jesus said this in Matthew twenty two thirty. 30, he said, for in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. It's possible then that these false teachers, like Hymenaeus, who believed that the resurrection had already taken place. Obviously, they were thinking it was solely a spiritual resurrection. The moment you put your faith in Jesus, you are now resurrected, you're glorified, you're living your life on a higher spiritual plane. Perhaps what they were teaching then is that in that state, we're like angels in heaven. Marriage is irrelevant now. We, don't, we do not do that. We're not given over to the normal practices of this world. We have been raised to a different plane, a different type of life. Well, the second demonic idea here, the first was that marriage is bad. The second was that certain foods are bad. They said in, they were requiring abstinence from foods. So again, the false teachers here are saying that certain foods are bad for you. They're not talking about 
tons of sugar or processed food, things that we would probably say are bad foods. That wasn't their point. The thing that they were saying was bad was probably meats in general, just all meat is bad. Or also it could have been that these Jewish false teachers were trying to tell Christians that they needed to abide by the Jewish dietary laws, which if you've ever read the Old Testament, were extremely restrictive. Either way, whether they were calling for no meat or they were calling them to abide by Jewish dietary customs, the point is this. Neither of those things are binding on Christians. We're not called to observe Jewish dietary laws. And we're also told in Genesis that God has given us not only vegetation for our nourishment, but also animals for our nourishment. But anyway, the thinking here was that if people would eat only these prescribed foods, whatever they might have been, that that was more godly. That was a superior diet for Christians to follow. So just eat this stuff. That's what the real godly people do. Now, I don't need to tell you, we do have a Christian version of this, right? We all know and hear intuitively what the most godly fast food restaurant is, right? I mean, it's Chick-fil-A, right? It's totally, well, maybe in and out's a close second, but it's totally Chick-fil-A, right? Like that, that is the Christian fast food. Is it just me or every time you go to Chick-fil-A, are there not three times as many Christians in that restaurant than any other restaurant you're in? Like I go into Chick-fil-A and I look around and it's like every table is bowing their head to pray before they eat. There's soccer moms and they're having Bible study. There's accountability groups in the table next to me and they're confessing their sins to one another. There's church planners over there that are plotting to take over the world. It's like, am I in church today? What is this? Chick-fil-A, the Christian restaurant. That's why all of us eat Chick-fil-A six days a week and on the seventh day, they're closed so we can fast because this is the Lord's day. To summarize then, the specifics of this false teaching was this, church. A restriction on marriage and a restriction on certain foods. So what's the corrective for this? How do we, how do we move beyond being given over to this false teaching? Well, here's the corrective for apostasy. And not just this particular apostasy, all apostasy. The corrective is this, the word of God. That's it. The word of God. And in this particular uh, situation in Ephesus, we can add to that prayer, a certain type of prayer, prayers of thanksgiving and gratitude. But look at verse five. He says, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. And he already in the verses before already started basically paraphrasing the word of God to correct this false teaching. Notice what the apostle Paul said Back there in verse 3, he was saying that they were, they were commanding that people abstain from foods, and, and then here he goes quoting some Bible, that God created to be received with thanksgiving. He's, he's going back to creation, saying, look, at, these people are saying, stop eating foods that God gave to us. Back at the creation for us to receive. And then in verse 4, he expands outward beyond just food to all of God's cr- good creation, and we can include marriage in that. He says, for everything created by God is good. Just get that into your theology. Everything created by God is good. This statement takes us back to God's own assessment of creation. Remember back in Genesis 1.31, God had made everything. And then he sits back and he's surveying his own work. 
and the beauty and glory of all of creation. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. It was perfect. It was paradise. Now, of course, sin has entered. Sin has wrought destruction on God's good creation and does take some discernment now. As we're looking at everything in the created world, we can't just embrace as believers every, every single thing, but uh, things as God initially created them were good. And right there, church, in the creation narrative of Genesis, we see the institution of marriage. And again, we see that food was provided for people by God. And both of these things are a good part of God's good creation. And we know that, not just because of what Genesis says, but we know that because with both marriage and food, these things are re-emphasized over and over again throughout Scripture. As it relates to marriage, here's Hebrews 13.4. Let marriage be held in honor among all. Kind of hard to take from that verse that we should not do marriage in church. Paul's saying it should be, or the author of Hebrews is saying, rather, it should be held in honor among all. Yeah, Daniel, that's New Testament stuff. Well, here's Old Testament, Proverbs 18.22. He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor or blessing from the Lord. If that's not a positive commending from Almighty God that marriage is a great thing, I don't know what is. And as it relates to food, here's Mark 7.18 and 19. Jesus said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, even french fries, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And then in Colossians 2.16, Paul says, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. So this clear teaching of the Word of God itself is enough to make holy both marriage and food. It is made holy by the Word of God. Marriage is a good gift, and we should receive it. We should honor it. Food is a good gift that we should receive with gratitude. The the Word of God itself is honoring these things and making them holy. But notice this really interesting thing that happens. There's another way that these things are sanctified or made holy, and it's through prayers of thanksgiving. As he is talking about food here, he tells us that these things are being sanctified not just through the word, but through prayer. The idea here is that these things are holy in and of themselves because they are God's good gifts to us, but they are doubly sanctified by our grateful acknowledgement of God's good gifts through prayers of thanksgiving. This is why Jews and Christians, historically, have taken a moment every time they eat to sit down and offer prayers of gratitude to God. I mean, we all know theologically and in our heads that God gives us every meal we have, right? But there's something powerful and there's something helpful about pausing every single time we eat and not just internally knowing these things, but actually expressing these things with hearts of gratitude where we sit down with our children and our family or our friends, whoever we're gathered with, and we take a moment and we say to our God, God, you are so good to us. Thank you for providing for us. Thank you for this good food, this gift that you've given to us. We receive these things with gratitude. That is the right posture of heart. And as we do that, again, there's a sense in which even our food is doubly sanctified or set apart or blessed 
So we bless our food by gratefully acknowledging the source of the gift through prayers of thanksgiving. But church, to summarize, the way to correct false teaching is always, always, always the Word of God. That's why everything we do has to be founded on God's Word. That's why every single Sunday in this church, we are going to devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching. We're just going to do that. We are here not to just hear my thoughts on, I mean, these aren't TED Talks, right? I'm not just here just sharing Daniel's ideas, five points for success. If what I'm doing here in God's Word, or whoever's preaching God's Word that Sunday, if what we're doing here is not anchored in God's Word, we're wasting your time and we're dishonoring the Lord. This is our standard, and this is the corrective, this is the safeguard against false teaching. So what do we do? In light of all of this, I mean, there's a sense in which you and I are last days believers, and you and I know from this text and others that people will depart from the faith. So what can we do? Well, individually, be students of the word. Okay, don't just take my word for it. Or your favorite preacher and their podcast. Be a student of the word yourself. I love the Bereans. Do you remember the Bereans and Acts chapter uh, 17, the Apostle Paul's in a city of Berea. He's preaching, and here's the little footnote in Acts 17.11 about these people, the Bereans. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So Paul's preaching, and they're going, hmm, interesting. Let's go back and have Bible study and make sure this guy's not a heretic. That's beautiful. It's a great thing. These are people grounded in the scriptures, trying to understand these things for themselves. So church, as individuals, we need to strive to have a handle on God's word ourselves. Don't just say, well, well that's just for pastors or spiritual leaders. They're going to inform me. They're going to teach me. Guys, there are bad teachers all around us. And so we need to be students of God's word ourselves, have a good handle on the word of truth. But that's not quite enough. Because I'll tell you what, there were a number of really, really gifted, if you will, atheist scholars that I profited from reading through seminary. People that they would give us books written by New Testament scholars that don't even believe the things that they're writing. But they're intelligent people. They have, in a sense, a good handle on the Word of God. And you can do that. You can, you can understand the Word of God Trust me when I tell you demons could quote the Word of God better than I could. You can have a good handle on these things. You could read the Bible and yet still not be in right standing with God and yet not be safeguarded from apostasy because you're already apostatized if you're not a believer in Jesus. So it's interesting that when the Apostle Paul counseled a different church, the church of, uh, in Colossae, here's what he said to them when he was counseling them against giving in to false teaching in Colossae. He writes this in Colossians 2, 6, and 7. Here's his, here's his solution for them. He says, therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. So yeah, let's have a handle on the Bible. Let's have a handle on God's word. But underneath that, let us be a people who have received 
Christ Jesus as Lord, this is speaking of conversion, that moment where you actually surrendered your life to Jesus as Lord. You're not just thinking of Jesus as a historical figure 2,000 years ago or a good moral example that you can learn from and try to emulate. Be the person who has actually received Jesus as Lord, Savior and Lord. Put your faith in him. You've turned from your sin and said, I'm going to start living for Jesus, trusting in him to save me from my sins, to save me from hell. You receive him as Lord and you walk in him. I love that. The idea of abiding in Christ every day. The idea of trying to live the life of Christ by his strength every single day, walking after him, walking in him. These are the things we can do as individuals. What can we do as a church? Really quickly, we can do this. We can be a church corporately that is based on the word of God. Number one, we can be a church corporately that is careful. Listen, careful in the teachers that we entrust as teachers in our church. And we talked a little bit about this as we were talking about qualifications for elders and deacons the last few weeks. This is so important. so important that we get the right types of people. People whose hearts have genuinely been transformed by Jesus. People who are not living this hypocritical life as a liar and a deceiver. People who have integrity and people who know and understand sound theology. We have to be careful as a church in who we raise up. Thirdly, we need to pray for our leaders. We need to pray for our teachers. And I would challenge all of you as your pastor, pray for me. Pray that I would be faithful to study God's word, that I would be faithful to prepare God's word accurately week in and week out. And, and just pray for me in general, that I would be faithful to Jesus and faithful to my family. We all can think of so many different pastors who have gone off the rails one way or another. And, and believe me, I'm not beyond that. The apostle Paul says, he who thinks he stands, take heed lest you fall. And so as your pastor and as a brother in Christ to all of you, I'm, I'm pleading with you, pray for me and pray for all of our leaders that we would be godly people and that we would have a handle on God's word and we would devote ourselves to God's word. And then lastly, let's help keep our leaders accountable. Okay, if you see something in my life that seems weird to you, talk to me about it. If, you, if there's things that are off, if I say things that are off color, if I'm behaving in a way that just is not fitting of a Christian, don't just go, well, he's the pastor. I should talk to me about it. Be nice, please. <laughs> Be gentle, please. But by all means, please talk to me about these things. I, I'm, I'm just as blinded to my sin as everybody else in this room. We are all blinded to our own sin, sin to some extent, and we need each other. I need you, you need me, we all need one another, and we are all the body of Christ, not just the pastors, all the body of Christ. And listen, we all share the responsibility to build up this church that we call Apostle Santa Barbara. That is all of our responsibility together. And as we do that, Listen to what happens. I'm going to just read a section of scripture and then I'm going to pray. But you can just, just close your eyes even and just think about what Paul says here in Ephesians 4, 11 through 16, and then I'll pray. And he, speaking of Jesus, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, 
to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And here's the key for what we're talking about this morning. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, he says, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Father, we are so thankful that you are a God in heaven who loves us. We're so thankful that throughout all of history, you have walked with your people. You have guarded your people. You have protected your people. And Lord, we are asking you that you would continue to protect each and every one of us. That, Lord, you would hold us tight. That you would strengthen our faith. That you would watch over us as a local church body. Lord, I also want to pray for every individual in this room. Lord, I ask that our faith is sincere. I pray that we have not just been going through the motions here at this church. I would pray, Lord, that real conversion is taking place in our hearts, that, that we have put our faith in you and the Holy Spirit is now inside of us because we know if that's true, then there's a sense in which we're always safe. And so, Lord, I pray for all of us that our confession of faith would be true. And Lord, I pray that we would be a people who are devoted to your word. We would be a people who abide in Christ every single day, who walk in him. And that through that, Lord, you would help us to safeguard our own lives, our families, our friends, our church against false teaching and apostasy. Lord, I do pray, though, that if there are any in our midst who either have never professed faith in Jesus at all, or perhaps they have, but it's never been more than that. They just talk the talk, but they don't walk the walk. They don't really believe these things. They've never surrendered themselves to Jesus. Oh Lord, I pray that you would change their heart here this morning. That they would make a conscious decision before they leave this church to say, I'm done living my own way. I'm done following my own ideas. I am going to surrender to the Lord Jesus who died for my sins, who rose again and who is Lord of all. I'm going to follow him with my life. I pray they would do that, that they would receive you by faith and they themselves would be saved. Do this work among us, Lord. And now, Lord, as we close in singing and worship and reflecting on the things we've talked about today, Lord, we give you our hearts once again. We sing you these, praise, these praises because you are worthy. You have saved us. And we love you forever for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.